And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing pretty good uh, and am excited for tonight's movie. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing pretty good as well. We are recording this on Easter Sunday. After our sort of dinner with our family, so got some good food, spent some quality time. Happy Easter. Yeah. And joining us for this lovely Easter weekend is a brand new patron. So thank you, Toby Martin. Thank you, Toby. If you want to be awesome like Toby, you can become a patron of the night at patreon.com slash podcast. There's lots of extra bonus audio and written tidbits and a whole whack of other things, as well as patrons of any level are able to vote in what we decide for our May horror adjacent bonus episode. So if you want to check that out, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching tonight? Tonight, Sarah, we are watching The Wasp Woman from 1959, directed by Roger Corman. Cool. I have some very fun facts to share with you. I like the way that these insect bug movies have given you excuse to give me like fun facts about insects. I don't like wasps. I don't think a lot of people no, like wasps. I think everyone agrees that wasps are the jerks of the insect kingdom. Sure. Um, what's kind of funny is like the poster for this movie is like a wasp with like a woman's head. Yeah. Um, which makes me think of like the idea of like the wasp waist. Yes. Right? With like cinching your waist. Um, the movie actually features a creature who is the the opposite of that, the reverse of that. Oh, so lady body wasp, wasp head. head? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's like the fly. Yes, it's exactly like the fly. But yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of wasps. Uh, what can you tell me about them that's fun and interesting? Well, did you know that there are nearly 30,000 subspecies identified? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. They range in size from like one millimeter to about two inches mm, in, no. all of those, in all of those uh, subspecies. Uh-huh. So uh, the very small one, those are fairy wasps. Okay. And then uh, on the two inches length is uh, that uh, great Asian hornet. Mm. Yeah, fuck that thing. Yeah. So wasps, you can kind of separate them into two camps. Okay. They are either solitary or social. Hmm. Solitary or just like, I'm just a wasp buzzing around in your garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use my stinger and my bite to hunt. And if I lay eggs, it'll either be in the ground or in other bugs. Yeah, because wasps are jerks. <laughs> the social ones are ones that build like the hives where it's like, hey, we have a queen. We have drones. We have huh. a caste system similar to our uh, cousins, the ant. So I didn't know about solitary wasps, but I did always consider wasps to be like, 
this horrible, like, what if bees were ants kind of idea. Yeah, no, they're all kind of related. I would say bees are the distant cousins, um, though they are all related. Did you know that only female wasps have stingers? No. Yeah, this was brand new to me. Um, I guess it's something to do similar to how, like, the reproductive system is developed. Not all females are fertile, unless you're a solitary wasp, then all the females are fertile, but they all have stingers and uh, they can use them multiple times, not like a bee. Mm-hmm, a bee, mm-hmm. it's one and done. Yeah. Um, but wasps are more likely to bite you than sting you. Huh. Yeah, yellow jackets is a very common uh, species of wasp in like North America. They are typically the kind that like you'll find in your backyard. They have a pheromone that is released when they sting you um, that can cause other yellow jackets to become aggressive towards you. It's not necessarily swarming behavior, as that behavior can be seen in wasps, but it's not the norm like it is with like bees. But it does kind of label you as like, hey, this person's a threat. Mm. Don't take any inch from them. Right. No prisoners. Exactly. Wasps in general won't take any prisoners, but this is like, no, we're ready to just nuke you from orbit. Right, yeah. Fuck wasps. (laughs) Uh, So they are definitely all predators. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, their young eat meat. Mm -hmm. And you're totally right about the link between wasps and that Victorian wasp waste trend Mm. that was about like cinching a woman's waist to be as narrow as possible to kind of mimic the silhouette of a wasp. That waist is called a petiole, which is neat. I didn't know it had a name, which also led me down a a little bit of a rabbit hole about why this movie might be looking at wasps. Mm. Um, Because obviously we have a bit of a a fly ripoff. Bugs are also like really common in these movies these days in 1959 so i started looking to like how wasps are maybe used in beauty products because i know that the plot of this movie revolves around beauty products Mm -hmm. so wasps aren't typically seen in beauty products i suspect because it um you need to be able to like easily harvest yeah and and what are you gonna do what are you gonna do with wasps right but there are a whole collection of other bugs that are used in cosmetics from like the dawn of time. <laughs> there are things from like beetles, silkworms, snails, even spiders. Um, but by far the most common is from the bee. Mm. Um, from that the beeswax, honey, pollen, bee larva. And the one that I want to highlight in particular here is royal jelly. Yes. Do you know what royal jelly is? Please describe it for our listeners. So, unlike wasp larvae, bee larvae don't eat meat. They can only subsist on royal jelly until they develop enough that they can eat the honey and um, like the pollen and the other stuff that like bees put together. Sure. Queen bees only ever eat royal jelly. And so scientists saw that this was the case um and that queen bees you know they are like the most fertile they live much longer than the average bee so scientists started thinking like huh is there something about 
royal jelly that is particularly like rejuvenating. Hmm. This kind of idea was kind of first speculated in like the 1920s, but serious research into royal jelly in a cosmetic sense began in France in 1950. Oh, interesting. Um, and by 1953, the first product hit the shelves featuring royal jelly. Also, that year was a coronation of the British monarchy. So I think it was also a bit of a, a marketing thing. Sure. Everything is always a marketing thing. Absolutely. Everything is always marketing. Now, the claims that royal jelly had, like, oh, you want to use this because it has these properties. Uh, it's very high in vitamin E theory is that it has a lot of estrogen uh there at one point there was the thought that maybe it's radioactive because of how like how much energy bees get from it i thought it was worth mentioning because a lot of movies with weird bug stuff have Mm -hmm. radioactivity as a a theme and you would use royal jelly to prevent wrinkles um manage male pattern baldness cure acne I'm guessing it didn't work. Well, I would say that the fad of royal jelly in U.S. products and on U.S. shelves for beauty products kind of ended by like the 1960s. So by this point, the fad is probably on its way out, but it's definitely like royal jelly beauty product kind Mm. of is forefront in people's minds. Right. Like horse hooves and glue. (laughs) Sure. It is still used in some beauty products, particularly in Asian brands. So there's like research done to show like, hey, look, this lady used it like for three weeks. She has less wrinkles. For me and my skepticism with beauty products, it's like, yeah, but for those three weeks, that person was washing their face and having a specific routine of washing your face and moisturizing and Probably an element of like avoiding certain drinks and drinking a lot of water. So you're already doing a lot of stuff to like take care of your skin just with that routine. So I would say that there's no definitive proof that royal jelly does anything. And where does royal jelly come from? Oh, there are nurse bees in a beehive that produce it. So think like, (laughs) you know, in like... Mad Max Fury Road, mm-hmm. those poor women like strapped to machines to continually produce breast milk. Yeah. Uh, it's like that, but with bees. Yeah. And and that's where the royal jelly comes from. So the thing is, is like this whole idea that you'd look at this and go, well, bee larvae, you know, have this until they, they develop into adults. And the queen always has this and, you know, lives so much longer than the others. And so maybe it's got like some sort of fountain of youth properties that can be used on humans is such a wild fucking leap to me to make because bees are a lot smaller than humans. And it would seem to me that like the natural assumption is not like, oh, it's got some sort of magic radioactive rejuvenating essence or something. It's just like, yeah, so when bee larvae are very young and very small, they subsist on like a very high nutrition substance until they're older like humans and breast milk and then like oh the queen lives so much longer it's like yeah because she's eating this super high nutritious 
like food her whole life. It, like, and she's a bee. Like the idea that something that would provide a lot of energy to a creature the size of my thumb, the idea that like that would work on like me and make like me live twice as long is like, I don't know, maybe if like I'm having as much Royal jelly relative to my body weight as that bee, but I don't think we have that much guys. It just um, seems silly to me is what I'm saying. Well, I will not bring up or speak about the theories around human breast milk and its use in beauty products and, and possible rejuvenation and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, I think that there's a lot you can critique about beauty products and the obsession over looking young. Mm-hmm. As a woman who is in my 30s, it has still infiltrated my brain even as I am critical of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's wild how it's infiltrated my brain. And I think that this movie, it's from Roger Corman. So he is known for bringing in some kind of element of like a cultural critique or a comment or something like that. I have no doubts that we will see a little bit of that in this movie. Yeah, be prepared to like get out a fork and a steak knife to dive into this one, Sarah, you're going to have plenty to chew on because the other thing that Roger Corman is generally well known for is having like stronger female characters than like movies being produced in the same genres around the same time. Um, You know, having kind of more independent female characters who have agency and personalities and like goals and motivations. Like this movie kind of has like a quasi feminist point of view. Um, Interesting. So would you say it's like a compound perspective because of wasp eyes or no, I would just, I would just (laughs) say that like, it's not like groundbreaking, um, but it's more than you, you would normally see in a movie of this kind. Right. Um, so in January of 1959, uh, Roger Corman and his brother, Gene formed the film group, uh, their own distribution company, So they could produce their own films and distribute them and distribute other cheap drive-in style movies without needing AIP. Additionally, Film Group was set up so that the movies produced there could be made uh, non-union, unlike AIP, thus cutting back Corman's costs significantly. But, you know, this was Corman trying to get into the distribution game. In February, Film Group announced that they would release 10 films... Uh, The first two releases were High School Big Shot, written and directed by Joel Rapp, and T-Bird Gang, directed by Richard Harbinger, both produced by Stanley Bickman. So these are movies that, you know, film group acquired to distribute. The third film group picture was The Wasp Woman, and this is the first that would be directed and produced by Roger Corman. The screenplay here is by Leo Gordon, who wrote Attack of the Giant Leeches, And it is very much a fly take. It's very much a the fly made money and was successful. Let's do a ripoff. The movie was shot in uh, 10 days for $50,000, a leisurely pace by Roger Corman standards, um, but a typically low Corman budget. As I mentioned, it stars a much more developed female lead than other genre pictures of this period, which is a common Roger Corman feature. Uh, In this case, the lead role is played by Susan Cabot. Born Harriet Pearl Shapiro on July 9th, 1927 in Boston, 
Um, she came from a Jewish family, but she grew up under very difficult circumstances. Her father abandoned the family, and then her mother's mental health um, quickly deteriorated until her mother was institutionalized, uh, leading Harriet to be raised in eight different foster homes in the Bronx, where she suffered from emotional and sexual abuse. After graduating from high school, she worked as a children's book illustrator and as a singer at a country music club. She married her childhood friend, artist Martin Sacker, at age 17 so she could leave foster care. She was spotted by a Columbia Pictures talent agent at that country music club, appearing in two films at Columbia before signing a contract with Universal. As her acting career took off, she divorced her husband, uh, but after three years of doing westerns at Universal, she was growing very dissatisfied with mm -hmm. her career. So she dropped her contract and went solo, leading to a three-year gap in her filmography as she tried out various stage roles. In 1957, she returned to movies with a number of Roger Corman films. She appeared in Carnival Rock, Sorority Girl, The Viking Women and the Sea Serpent, War of the Satellites, Machine Gun Kelly, and The Wasp Woman. As The Wasp Woman, uh, Cabot was at the mercy of Corman's low-budget special effects. She would fill her mouth with chocolate syrup that she could then spit out when she bit people to make it look like it was a bleeding wound. <laughs> um, and she wore a wasp head mask that only had like small nostril holes to breathe through. Ooh. So there's a scene in the movie where someone throws a bottle of acid at her face and um, props department filled the breakaway bottle with water uh, so that it would like splash when it broke apart. But the problem was like the, w the way that like a breakaway bottle works is you um, score the bottle um, basically like pre kind of breaking it mm. um, so that it'll shatter apart in a controllable fashion. Filling it with water gave it enough weight that it didn't break apart Oh, uh, so it just hit her right in the teeth, uh, stunning her. And then production assistants were supposed to douse liquid smoke under her head to like simulate the burning acid. So they did that while she was standing there kind of stunned and all of it went up her nostrils and filled up the mask and she started choking to death. And as she kind of like clawed and scratched at the air and like started backing away, someone realized what was going on and poured water on her to douse the smoke. Despite these mishaps, uh, Corman described Cabot as always being game to do her own stunts and a good sport about the low budget. <laughs> Cabot, for her part, uh, described Corman as a quick thinking maverick. Yeah, that seems pretty accurate to uh, the persona he's developed so far. Now, The Wasp Woman would be the final film for Susan Cabot as she quit acting to pursue the romantic relationship she had started the year before with King Hussein of Jordan. Oh. The King of Jordan. Yes. They had... How did they meet? Um, He was jet-setting around with Hollywood actresses in the late 1950s a lot. Okay. Um, they had a child out of wedlock in 1964, uh, but separated soon after that. 
with King Hussein providing 1500 a month in child support. In 1968, she married her second husband, Michael Roman, with whom she raised her son, Timothy Scott Roman. Tim was born with Kreutzfeldt Jacob disease, which is an invariably fatal degenerative brain disorder. He suffered from pituitary gland problems as a result of the disease, causing dwarfism. Tim began taking human growth hormone for his dwarfism, and Susan began to take it as well in an attempt to self-medicate her own mental illness. In 1983, her husband divorced her, and she became increasingly depressed, suicidal, and irrationally paranoid. Um, She wouldn't clean her house, things deteriorated. Uh, She was sent to a clinical psychologist, but the psychologist found her to be so troubled and so distressing to talk to that the sessions became too emotionally draining for the psychologist and the psychologist withdrew from the sessions. Whoa. By 1986, uh, Cabot's condition had deteriorated significantly. On December 10th, uh, she woke up in the middle of the night screaming and calling for her mother and attacked her 22-year-old son with a barbell and scalpel not recognizing him. He seized the barbell from her and beat her to death with it. He was then convicted of involuntary manslaughter, spent two and a half years in jail and three years on probation, and eventually passed away from his disease at age 38 in 2003. Whoa, that's a lot. So um, I don't really have a good like exit out of that. Um, so the movie's male lead is uh, Fred Isley who was born in Philadelphia in 1925. He served in the U.S. Navy before taking drama classes and becoming a stage actor. In the 1950s, he appeared in a lot of different films and on television, uh, including The Wasp Woman, which he said was a hell of a fun shoot. Uh, In 1959, he signed with Warner Brothers, who changed his name to Tony, and he was best known uh, as the lead on the TV show Hawaiian Eye from 1959 to 1963. He left the show um, and after that acted as the um, MC for the Project Prayer protests of the Supreme Court decision that mandatory prayer in schools was unconstitutional. Okay. Uh, And he continued acting in various TV and film roles until his retirement in 1991, passing away in 2003. Okay. Familiar Corman faces in the cast include Barbara Morris, uh, who we saw in Bucket of Blood, and of course, Bruno Vesoda. Michael Mark, who appeared in a number of classic universal horror movies, as well as as a janitor in Return of the Fly, also features in this film as kind of a mad scientist type. And writer Leo Gordon's wife, Lynn Cartwright, also has a small role. Playwright William Rorick, who lived in New York City with his partner Thomas Coley, appears after having previously had a role in the Corman picture Not of This Earth. He did a lot of film and television acting over the years, and of his various roles, including the character of Henry Chamberlain on Guiding Light from 1980 to 1995, He said that his favorite roles were the ones he did with Roger Corman. 
Actor Frank Wolf appears in a minor part in this film. He had first worked with Roger Corman in I, Mobster. And despite his small roles in that film and this one, he would get a leading part in Beast from Haunted Cave. So I am going to talk more about him then um, because his life is also extremely upsetting. Mm. So The Wasp Woman was released on October 30th, 1959 on a double bill with Beast from Haunted Cave. Like all of Film Group's releases, Corman didn't bother to copyright it. It got middling reviews at the time. Like, not aggressively negative, just kind of like, yeah, this is fine for what it is. Like, that's kind of the tone. Its running time of only 66 minutes caused some trouble when it was sold to television in 1961. Mm. Uh, so Corman got this guy, Jack Hill, who was like a protege of Roger Corman and studied at film school under Dorothy Arzner. He was like a classmate of Francis Ford Coppola's. Um, he hired Jack Hill to shoot a seven minute prologue with Michael Mark uh, to extend the running time. And uh, Jack Hill went on to probably be best known for the 1970s Pam Greer films Coffee and Foxy Brown. Okay. The version with the prologue is now kind of like the standard version, the most commonly seen version, uh, even though it does feature cars that um, didn't exist in 1959. Like there's like 1960s cars in this prologue and then we're in the late 50s for the rest of it kind of thing. The movie's in the public domain. It's on our YouTube playlist. Which version will we be watching? Uh, the version with the prologue, which is just like an extra seven minutes stuck out in the front of the movie. Yeah, no yeah. worries. Uh, great. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find our playlist on our website at screamscenepodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss The Wasp Woman from 1959, directed by Roger Corman. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Wasp Woman from 1959, directed by Roger Corman. Ben, first thoughts? So I liked this one. Um, I think it has some like weaknesses, but I think judged against its peers, it's pretty good. I was disappointed. Mm. I was disappointed. Okay. We're um, going to have a, an interesting episode then. Yeah, I think this might be a buzzworthy episode. <laughs> uh, so how about I tell folks a little bit more about the film? Mm -hmm. We begin with that prologue that Ben kind of set up in the context setting uh, where we see Dr. Zinthrop. He is experimenting with wasps and uh, trying to get some extractions of queen wasp royal jelly. Uh, as I explained in the context setting, uh, wasps don't have royal jelly. They just munch down on insects. Um, but in any case, uh, that is what Dr. Zinthop is doing. Now, what I think is really neat is this prologue is shot at what appears to be a real honey farm. There's a real 
beehives. There are real bees buzzing about. Um, I was impressed. I thought that was impressive. But ultimately, Dr. Zinthop is let go because you you weren't hired to experiment with wasps and shit. You were hired to extract bee royal jelly. Yeah, basically the, the honey company's like, wait a minute, wasps don't produce royal jelly. You're fired. <laughs> but he's like real nice about it. He's yes. like, listen, dude, like this seems cool and all, and I get that you're passionate about it, but this is not what we're paying you for. So we have to let you go. But I'm sure you'll find your fit somewhere. Right. <laughs> so this is not a, um, and they all laughed at me yeah. kind of mad scientist. This is he's a just, like, oh, down on his luck. He's just encouraged to find another place of employment. Yeah. Cut to Janice Starlin Enterprises. And now this is the like main movie. Yeah. Um, and we see that sales are going down at this beauty company. Now, founder and owner Janice of Janice Starlin asks her board of directors like, hey, why do you think sales have been going down? And no one really has quite an answer except for one up-and-comer go-getter named Bill Lane who posits, it's because our spokeswoman is old. And Janice is like, I'm the spokeswoman. You dumb shit. I mean, I think that like, (laughs) you know, this sucks, but this is a fair commentary on like how the cosmetics industry works, you know? Yeah, but he's a real ass about it. So for context, Janice is 40. She started the company when she was 22, and that was about 18 years ago. I don't know if... So I actually disagree that he's being an ass about it. I Because like what he says isn't that the company's failing because Janice is old. What he says is that the company's success comes from Janice as being the model in all of like the ads and they haven't been using her lately. They've been using someone else and like the public doesn't trust that new face. But then like what's the implication is that the reason they're using a new face is because Janice is old. So I actually think he expresses it as well as he can in this boardroom setting. But anyways... So because she feels like her company needs something new, Janice agrees to see uh, Dr. Zinthop. Uh, I guess Zinthop had written her a letter saying like, I have this new idea for this beauty product. I think you might be interested. And she's like, well, let's see what this guy has and brings him in to give like a demonstration. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the prologue, he's Dr. Zinthrop. And then in the rest of the movie, he's just Mr. Zinthrop. Yeah. <laughs> How the mighty have fallen. <laughs> they took my doctorate away. <laughs> my doctorate in wasps. <laughs> um, and so he, he shows her that he has, uh, he brings in two guinea pigs and he has the solution that he injects into one. And in front of her eyes, the guinea pig de-ages into a rat but the movie is like no it's like a baby guinea pig Mm -hmm. it's it's a rat but uh (laughs) you know and he shows it to her again with the second guinea pig to show that hey i can do this miracle twice it's reliable at least on this animal testing uh it's not yet ready for like human subjects but you know that's why i need your funding to kind of expand it Janice is very impressed, so she agrees that, okay, we will bring you on to um, do this experimental research, but we're going to keep this secret because this is an experimental thing. We don't want you know, our competitors getting word of it. And the fact that it's all kept secret is much to the concern of Bill Lane 
and an older executive who kind of seems to be a bit of a mentor to Bill as well. Uh, his name is Arthur Cooper. Arthur Cooper seems to be of the belief that uh, it's that Janice is running her company wrong and is second guessing the decisions that she's making. Um, now, because Bill is his mentee, um, Bill kind of goes along with this thinking as well. And their concern is that like, well, this woman is so concerned with the idea of aging that she's being hoodwinked by someone selling like snakeskin oil, basically. Yeah. They're concerned she's being taken advantage of because she's only focused, in their opinion, she's only focused on not looking old. Well, Rather I mean, than thinking, she's a CEO of a, her own company. She can run it the way she sees fit. So so the thing about, like, Cooper is we sort of get the idea that, like, Cooper understands a bit more of the science behind the cosmetics than, like, Bill does, who seems to mostly just be, like, an advertising guy. And before Janice meets with Zinthrop, she, like, calls Cooper in and is like, hey, do you think there's anything to this whole like royal jelly can make you young again thing. And he's like, I don't know, maybe, probably not. And the fact of the matter is, is like Cooper's not wrong. His opinion is what is true in like the real world. So I can't really hold it against him too hard that like when a random dude who the company did no background checks on at all shows up out of nowhere and the CEO is like, this guy gets all the funding he wants, but no one is going to work with him or provide him any oversight or supervision. Like I can't hold it against Cooper too much to be like, this sounds fishy, you know? And I think that like, it's probably good that executives in a company try to steer their bosses away from questionable decisions and i don't think just because janice is a woman means she should be able to like be be granted clemency on making bad decisions that her executives can't question her on so that's not what i'm saying but it's just that like the movie as it is told to us we're getting ahead of ourselves into this discussion, I think, a little bit, but that's okay. The movie, as it is told to us, shows us that this solution works mm -hmm. on guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. Janice wants to fund that research. Mm -hmm. Men are questioning that decision. Mm -hmm. Yes, but also she doesn't explain anything to them. She doesn't tell them what the solution is. She doesn't tell them what it does. She doesn't tell them anything. She just says, give this guy off the street all of our money if he asks yeah. for it. But it is literally said in the movie by Bill that she is so focused on aging, she can easily be hoodwinked. Mm -hmm. And that just seems very sexist to me. I think it's a statement on sexism not the movie is sexist like i think we're conflating depicting sexism with like endorsing sexism here because i think the movie's making a like commentary on the way that the beauty industry and its focus on like remaining young forever is yeah. bad yeah i never said that the movie was sexist i'm currently explaining the plot and that these people are behaving in a sexist manner. Okay. We are saying the same thing, I think. Hmm. I will say, I think Bill comes off as sexist for sure. Definitely in like a kind of, um, you know, late 50s ad executive hotshot 
kind of way. Um, but I, I didn't really feel any sexism from like Cooper's behavior. That all just felt like I'm suspicious of this dude. And I know just enough to think that like, this is a con man Mm. or, or worse a quack. Yes. Back to the plot summary, Bill and Cooper decide to bring in Janice's secretary, Mary, to help them figure out what is going on. They get her to uh, look through Janice's desk and they find the letter that Synthop first like sent in. And Cooper takes this to be like, see, he is a quack. Like someone would easily be taken in with the idea of wasp royal jelly being a miracle cure. But I'm, I'm even more suspicious of this guy. So he plans to sneak into the laboratory to see what is really going on. Now, meanwhile, one of Janice's terms with Synthop is that she be his guinea pig for the human experiments. So they've been doing this. It's been, you know, slow but successful. Uh, she's been taking these injections over the past three weeks. Um, apparently she's de-aged by five years. But this isn't really fast enough for her. Um, the way that the movie is cut of like bouncing back between those injections and Cooper and Bill being like, well, we're not sure what's going on. Um, also makes me think that Janice is feeling like pressure to like show and prove that yeah. this stuff is actually works. So it has some pressure in that way. Yeah. So she decides um, that she's going to start taking the formula without the supervision of Zinthop. Now, Zinthop recently just came up with this concentrated formula. He thought it could possibly be used in, like, skin cream or something like that. And he's showing that, hey, it worked on this cat who is now a kitten. Isn't that great? And it's this concentrated formula that Janice is injecting herself with. She doesn't see that the cat has developed some side effects of, like, turning into a wasp, basically. A wasp cat. (laughs) Uh, now, the next morning, Synthop goes in, he's like, la-da-da-da-da, back at my favorite job, and realizes, oh god, this cat is now a wasp. Um, he gets attacked by the cat, and he manages to kill it, and then he puts it into the incinerator. And he's kind of, like, stunned at, like, oh, shit, this is what my work has done. And he's kind of in a daze, so he, like, leaves to kind of go for a walk to clear his head. It's clear that, like, he's in a daze. He's not quite sure what he's doing. While he's on that walk, he gets hit by a bus. He's fine, but he has a head injury, so he's rushed to hospital. Because he was in a daze, he didn't lock his laboratory. And so Cooper sneaks in to kind of go digging around and confirms that, like, yeah, he's experimenting with wasp royal jelly, uh, just as he said he was. Well... So the thing is, is that they don't actually know that. She doesn't tell them what he's experimenting with until after she starts taking the concentrated solution and looks so much younger. So to be fair, the audience knows that. Cooper doesn't. Yeah, but he, they have the note. That sure. Letter. Oh, that's right. That's right. I had forgotten that. Yes. So while the movie pads out time for trying to find Zintha, oh, yeah. like Janice hires a private PI. She learns that Mary took the letter. All these things because she's trying to find him because like since taking that concentrated formula, she now looks like 20 years younger. She feels ready to launch this product. But with Zimthop not being around, she A, can't like make more of it. And B, he doesn't know that she's ready to like 
announce this new product to the world. She needs them for like the press conference and stuff, right? Absolutely. I just love that at this point, the movie, this is when the movie establishes that like the company has no information about Zinthrop at all. Like they, she needs to get the letter back from Mary simply because that's the only place where like his address is potentially written. <laughs> like she yes. hires this PI and it's like, so what was his phone number? Where did he come from? Where did he work before this? And we find out that like Janice did no background check. No. Eventually they find that he is in the hospital. Um, so he has amnesia. He can't remember what he needed to tell her, which was that the serum causes you to turn into a wasp. So while he is off recovering, Janice is continuing to inject herself. Now that night, Cooper sneaks back into the lab uh, to try to figure out some more about what Zinthop has been experimenting on. And he basically interrupts when Janice is injecting herself and she has been getting these really bad headaches. Uh, and she, uh, we don't see it on screen, but she basically turns into a wasp with like a wasp head and wasp hands. Yeah, but otherwise, the rest like a, of her is human. Yeah. Attacks and like bites him and kills him. Uh, his body is never found. So to me, that means she ate him. Yeah, I think they heavily imply that she's devouring the people she kills. Which is hilarious to me. <laughs> I love that. She also does this to the night watchman because immediately after we see Cooper get killed and presumably eaten, we cut to a night watchman with comical soundtrack because he's played by Bruno Visota, who is large and therefore is funny. Right. Um, so we establish that the night watchman exists, but it's on a future night that he gets attacked and killed. Eventually, um, Zinthrop is like well enough to leave the hospital, but he's moved into a, a room in the building with like a night nurse kind of watching over him. Janice, her headaches keep getting worse. Uh, she seems to turn back into like a person after these um, flare ups of like waspness. <laughs> and it's almost like she doesn't like fully realize what's going on. Yeah. Um, and so she goes to Zinthop and she's like, you have to help me. Like something's going on. And he's like, no, I don't remember what I was supposed to tell you. Eventually she actually ends up killing Zinthop's nurse. While all that's happening, Mary and Bill are continuing to investigate because Cooper's gone missing. The night watchman's gone missing. Um, and they discover what Cooper came across, which was that Zinthop was experimenting with wasps. So they go to Zinthop. And he's like, oh, I remember what I was supposed to tell her. The serum turns you into a wasp. But by then it's too late because Bill has sent Mary up to Janice's office to be like, hey, we should call the police because something's happened to the nurse. Janice has one of her headache attacks and uh, turns into a wasp and goes to attack Mary. Once Bill and Zinthrop realize that Janice is the wasp and has been like killing these people, they run and they go to go up to her office and stand and wait for the fucking elevator. And they're like, Mary, I have to save Mary yelling in front of the fucking elevator. Just take the fucking stairs, my guy. <laughs> I mean, he does eventually. Eventually. Anyways, they get up there. They interrupt the attack with Mary. Zinthrop gets attacked and like stung with like the the stinger that's in her hands but uh manages to throw some acid on her face while bill takes a chair and kind of like lion tamer uh, yes. pushes janice out the window and she falls to her death 
Yeah. Because she only she didn't develop wings. She was just the face and the the hands. She falls like 40 stories. Yes. It, it was kind of surprising to me, honestly, <laughs> that like that's how she ties in this movie. And so that's that's the end. Uh, Zinthop is dead. Uh, he succumbs to his wounds. Mary and Bill uh, are safe together. Mary is, isn't killed or anything. Um, so yeah, the end. Yeah, so it's very much like, a, you know, no one can ever experiment with this again because Zinthrop's dead kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of already <laughs> got into the discussion a little bit. Right. Um, for me personally, I found this movie disappointing. Mm-hmm. Knowing Roger Corman a bit, I wanted this to be to have at least like a little bit of like a maybe a power fantasy or something for like a woman being the monster or being the CEO and owner of a company. Um, But it didn't really feel like that because um, these executives are questioning Janice's every like decision that she makes. She herself. doesn't have like power over when she transforms. It's all like accidental, uh, almost as like a way to like avoid blame, like in like the code sense. I I don't know what, why, but like she kills indiscriminately. So it doesn't feel like she has any like agency as a wasp. It's just like kill and eat. And so I just felt like a little disappointed that there wasn't like more agency behind what she was doing um, and I, I found it quite frustrating that the people who are supposedly supposed to be like our heroes um, are the ones who are like portraying the sexism of the time, you know? So I guess like part of this is like I wasn't going into this expecting a power fantasy. I was going into this expecting a cautionary tale, which is what we get. Sure. And I think like as a horror movie, it's, you know, more horrific when you can't control the side effects of what's happening, when you're, you know, killing these people and you don't have control over that. I think as a horror movie that works better than like a story where she transforms and like gets back at the people who like doubted her or whatever. Also, like for me, I read Janice as the protagonist of the story Mm -hmm. and the other characters as supporting characters. So I kind of was viewing the movie like through her lens and not really through the lens of the other characters. And for me, like, I think the movie does a really good job of like showing this woman who's under a lot of pressure, you know, the pressures of her time, as it were. Uh, in in more ways than one, like her age, but also the like 1950s era that she's in. Honestly, I think the script is is decently intelligent. I think that it's observations about women in a corporate space, the cosmetics industry, the pressures to be young. You know, they're basic observations, but they are still very apt. And I I really liked... There were like a lot of little things I liked, like the office feels like a real place because yes, there's Cooper and Mary and Bill, but there are like other executives who are consistently present at the board meetings who have like names and personalities. There's like a couple more secretaries in the office who get little side scenes. So it made it feel like a real like living company, a real place. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was really effective. I think that one of the things that I think is causing like a bit of the disconnect between you and me on how we're interpreting the male characters is, you know, you're reacting in a defensive manner against like these men questioning 
Janice, who's their boss. And I think the the problem, like where the movie starts to break down with that potentially, is that like they're right. It but the thing is, is that they're right, but they're still wrong. Yeah, like at one point, this is early on, like hmm. Janice hasn't started taking any injections, but she has hired on Zinthope, and Bill is talking to Mary because you know, they're our love interest couple. Right. Um, saying like, ugh, women. Yeah. And for this one time, it's clear in the movie, it's it's this first time that Mary is like, you know, and usually I let you get away with saying, ugh, women, but like, why are you saying that right now? And he's like, because she's being taken advantage of. And it's like, you have no evidence to suggest that. Like, all you, all you young executive know is that she is brought on an R&D specialist, and you don't know what it's about. But also, he's in advertising. He doesn't need to know what it's about sure. until they're ready to launch. Um, I can see where Cooper's coming from, but it's also a case of like him being like, well, I know what's best for this woman and for this woman's company. He's never coming at it as like, a, well, I, like, I've worked with her for a long time. I'm not really sure what this guy's scientific method is. It's a case of like, well, I don't think she knows what's best for her own company because an average person could be taken in by what like this person is selling. She built her own company. I'm sure she has a bit more knowledge than the average layperson. So I agree with your read on Bill, and I just don't agree with your read on Cooper at all. Like, that's fair. Um, with with Mary, I did really like the line that she has where what she what she says to him is like, when he goes like, ugh, women, her, what she says to him is, that's your answer for everything. Yes. Um, which I did really like. I think Bill is kind of meant to be read as like, a bit of a cad, I think. The thing about their doubts is they actually turn out to be wrong to doubt Zinthrop. Yes. Like they think that Zinthrop is either a con man or a quack. And it turns out Zinthrop's actually on the level. And the problem is actually Janice because what causes all the problems is like, personally, I'm on the board of director side in the sense that taking on a random nobody off the street and giving him like free reign is a little weird and questionable but quite frankly that could all be fine the real big mistake that janice makes here is going and i need to be your first human subject and then after that being like i need to take more of this and like going in and taking more of it without him knowing and taking the higher doses that he says aren't safe and so on and so the thing about like cooper and and the rest's like doubts is they're wrong to doubt Zinthrop, but I think it's understandable to doubt Zinthrop because my read on Cooper isn't like, I know what's best for this company more than you do. It's more that like Cooper understands enough of the science to doubt Zinthrop because what Zinthrop's saying is nutty, basically. And, you know, his argument about the letter is like, it's this interesting thing to me because they, up till he reads the letter, they think that Zinthrop is, you know, like I said, either a con man or a quack. And then he reads the letter and he's like, this is just convincing enough that it could fool a layman, uh, which is why he needs to like go look at more of the actual like scientific notes. Because what he's really saying in that moment is like, oh, this is a little more legit than I was expecting. Not, oh, Janice is such a fucking idiot for believing this. That's not how I really took it. And then, you know, he looks at the notes and he's like, oh, like, huh, this, no, this is actually really on the level. 
the fear that they have that turns out to actually be correct is the fear that Janice is letting her fears about aging and losing, you know, and losing the company or its prestige because of it unduly influence her decisions. That's the part that's actually true, not that she's getting taken for a ride because she's really the one making the bad decisions here. And so I do think it's a little bit like, I think the, the heart of the disagreement that you and I are having or the like difference in interpretation that you and I are having is being caused by the fact that like they, they aren't correct about Zinthrop, but they are still like right to doubt what's going on and look into it. And they are right that Janice is, like too tied up with like her age and how she looks. That being said, you know, it's Bill himself who sets up the idea in her head that that's why the company's losing money. Yeah. And I'm not saying that women in positions of power should not have checks and balances. (laughs) Like I'm not saying that what I'm trying to get across is that she is, as you said, she is in this kind of, mindset because of the people around her Mm. uh both in terms of the executives on her board um coming up and building this company since like the 40s i guess like with the time frame of Mm -hmm. all of that like her expertise in this field is not being given the weight it kind of deserves and rather than cooper being like well i think she's being taken advantage of so i'm going to decide what's best for her and go digging into this person and going behind her back getting her secretary to go digging into her belongings Mm -hmm. rather than being like i've worked with janice for years i know she has a good head why don't i go talk to her and say hey before you had asked me about wasp jelly is that what Zinthop's working on? I would love to be involved to kind of make sure that things are going smoothly. Just like coming to her as an equal rather than being a little bit of like a patriarchal perspective of like, I know what's best. I think that's what rubbed me the wrong way yeah, with Cooper. I think the thing is, is like, I'm not seeing this I know what's best thing from Cooper mm-hmm. that you are. I think that's, that's the, the big thing here. But also, I think from Cooper's point of view, it's like, she consulted with him, asked his expert opinion. He was like, yeah, I don't think there's anything to this. And then out of nowhere, like brings in this guy and has this secrecy and gives him all this like, you know, free reign of the company. So I, I think it it makes sense that like Cooper's like feeling like she went behind his back a little bit and, you know, that this guy might be bad news as for why he doesn't like directly talk to Janice about it, I think at that point we're running into the because it's more fun to have like yeah. a mystery thing that they're investigating. Kind yeah, of if thing. everyone behaved properly, like the movie, we wouldn't, wouldn't have a movie exactly. So at a certain <laughs> point, you run totally. into that problem. But I do think that the movie has something to say that in a 1959 context is very apt about the way that the cosmetics industry is focused on youth, the, I think the observation that if Janice was the face of the company, you know, in the early days and now she's getting older and she can't be the face of the company anymore. And that's causing people to doubt the product. Like, I think that's a very apt observation of the way those industries work. I think that like, clearly 
like somebody like Leo Gordon who wrote the script or somebody like kind of had at least done a little bit of research into the um, cosmetics industry of the time, because like you were saying in the context setting, like Royal jelly from bees was like the new hot thing in like the cosmetics industry at this time. And so like, it it was hot and new in the early fifties. Sure. But it's like the people writing this, like the company feels real. This feels like a real thing that a company could do. So I think um, I really like the, uh, the secretaries, uh, like the not Mary, but like the other two, uh, they just feel very like real to me. I'm torn about this. So they show Zinthop interacting with those secretaries and he's like a little leery, a little leery. They also get like a delivery and those guys are really like gross, mm-hmm. uh, very creepy. And like, while on the one hand, I appreciated that, like, hey, look, we are showing like the realities that these women probably had to deal with. They're also like, are these being played for laughs? Like, why, why are we spending so much time on this? Um, And there was also, I kind of touched on it in the plot summary, but the very strange comedic music being used with Bruno Fasoda. Oh yeah. That, that was just like, why the fuck? That just sucks. Like there's that just no, really I have no, fucking like, sucks. that's just straight up. Like it's 1959. And just the fact that this guy is fat is funny. Like that's the whole joke. And it comes immediately after the kill of Mm -hmm. Cooper. Yeah. And it's like, why are you undercutting yourself here? Mm -hmm. So there are just things in this movie that I'm like, Hey, we know that this is a a monster movie. I might need to be convinced that it's a horror movie because we do take so long for, we spend the entire movie pretty much at the fireworks factory, but it takes a long time for things to actually explode. And Mary, poor Mary, Her lack of reactions and expressions. So I think, I think the characters in this movie are a lot of fun. I think part of the disconnect between you and me is I actually really like enjoyed the supporting characters because for me, it was like watching the cast of Mad Men in a Scooby-Doo episode. But I absolutely agree that Barbara Morris is kind of like an unfortunate weak link in the performances of the cast I do want to say I think she's great as a flustered secretary and girlfriend. It's just when the horror ramps up that she gets she's real out of her depth. She uh hey listeners, I bear with me. There is this like running joke about the way that like white people awkward smile. Okay. Like you like pass them in the hallway and they won't give like a full smile. Cause like, it's like, that might be a little weird, but they'll give the little, like, like little, like squeeze the lips together and kind of scrunch up the cheeks a bit. Okay. Um, and I'm not the, familiar with this meme, but okay. go on. Well, it's mainly from, um, people of color joking sure. about it online, which is why it's like kind of associated with like white people doing it. I, yeah. I've caught myself doing it, but that is Mary's reaction to <laughs> the idea of like, it turns people into wasps. Mm. Well, and it's like she like, has well, well, she has okay. no real reaction to like the blood stains on the floor that they find. She's like, she, oh, that. Well, where could the nurse be? She yeah, <laughs> she's she really no sells it, and like it even takes her like there's a beat before she starts screaming when she sees the wasp woman, and I think maybe it's supposed to be like a moment of shock or something, but it really just reads as like 
nothing. Yeah. Like she just is, is really no selling it. I do think MVP in the cast goes to Susan Cabot, um, whose performance as Janice is kind of what the whole movie hangs on. Like you have to believe her feelings about what's going on in order for the rest of the movie to make sense. And I think she really delivers on that. Yeah, I think she does a good job. I also think that while, you know, the Wasp woman herself is obviously a mask and some mittens, it's still better than a lot of the other monsters we see at this budget level. Uh, it's a it's a little jumbled though. That yeah. that mask needed a little bit more work. Maybe I do think you know, and this is also very basic. Like the makeup is almost like stage makeup practically. But I do think it was a smart call to age Susan Cabot up by doing makeup that emphasized like her wrinkles and her forehead lines and things like that, and then like removing that makeup to age her down yes. um, rather than trying to, you know, do the opposite of that, I guess. I, this is often what I think when I see um, like a lot of like de-aging, CGI de-aging nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, it's, it's way easier to make a, a young person look older. I think with the, with the like secretaries and the moving guys and those kind of moments and the leering of Zinthrop and stuff, what I think is happening there is those two younger secretaries who aren't Mary are kind of there to demonstrate the way that men and women treat women as having their value attached to their looks. Yeah. Like so that we can see the way that these men sh see women just as objects, but also the way that like those women themselves, when like Janice comes in looking younger are like super stunned and are like, oh, wow. And like, even though they're young and hot, they're like, oh, I wish I could get some of that cream and look 10 years younger. And I think it's necessary to show kind of the way that this obsession with youth and beauty and how that provides value is so ingrained in society that like even the other women in the story um, think that way. Your argument about like, it takes a long time for the fireworks to go off. So on the one hand, I will just say the like seven minute long prologue is obviously filler. Like it's very filler. There's a lot of filler in this movie. But I will say that like, you know, our perception of the pacing might have been different without that in there. The other major piece of filler is the P.I. sending his guy, Larry or whatever, <laughs> Jerry. Jerry, to go try and find Zinthrop and we see him like driving around like asking the landlady and asking random people on the street have you seen this man and finally coming to the hospital which is the first place you're supposed to check in like a missing persons investigation because it's just him driving around for like I don't know probably like a solid minute and a half to five minutes and the problem with that is that <laughs> they're very obviously driving around LA this looks nothing like Manhattan yeah. um, so that's really filler-esque because uh, that whole subplot's really unnecessary. Yeah, it's um, a cul-de-sac. But I do think this is horror. Because of what I was talking about earlier with the way that this movie is based around like a, a relatable fear, that fear of aging, that desperation to look younger again, that fear that you're going to lose value because you're getting older, and that's driving you to this like desperate 
act where you're making bad decisions. And then the horror of being like turned into this wasp woman who's like attacking and killing people. And I think the fact that at least for me, my interpretation was that Janice was the protagonist meant that the horror is happening to Janice and we're with her and her POV. So the horror is in the right place and we're seeing it from the right POV for my money anyway. Yeah, I agree that that's what like it might be trying to do. I think it would have been stronger if it was from like Mary's point of view and having to navigate like the politics of a workplace where like, do you go with your boyfriend and his mentor to go behind your boss's back or do you stay with your boss and like try to support her and then seeing how this environment drives your boss to become a wasp woman Sure. Um, as you try to navigate? Like, I think it would have been stronger in that hmm. sense, but um, That's yeah. an interesting thought. I hadn't really thought of that. I thought it was strong being from Janice's point of view. I do think that like the movie does avoid the worst decision it could have made, which is the movie isn't really from Cooper or Bill's point of view. Thank God. Like it's, it's, they are supporting characters here, but they aren't our POV characters. So where were you looking to rank in that case? Well, I, the thing about this movie for me is that I think if this movie had like double the budget that it had, it could have been something really special. I think the script is good. I think the extra time they took to shoot it paid off. But like if it had just maybe had a little bit more money so it didn't have to rely on filler and they could have like made a better wasp costume and a few other things like that, I think they could have really hit on something unique. As it is, it doesn't hit that bucket of blood kind of high. But what I will say that this movie makes clear is just how much better Roger Corman is at these kinds of movies, at this kind of price point. Because even with this film that's a little weak uh, in spots, I think it's still better than nearly everyone else who's pumping out this kind of product at this budget level. Like even with the flaws that you've identified in the film, it still has like more to say and the characters are better drawn and the pacing, even with the filler, the pacing is a lot better than a lot of these kinds of movies. Well, even just comparing it to last week's attack of the giant leeches, yeah. which was like done by like people in his world. Right. Uh, Roger's still way better. Yeah. As much as like, for me, this movie didn't quite work, but yeah, it's definitely, I don't have a spot picked out because I wasn't feeling this was horror, but I want to mm, hear where you were thinking. Okay. Um, but I would say that it would definitely go above Attack of the Giant Leeches. Oh, for sure. Attack of the Giant Leeches is as near to the bottom of the list as we could reasonably put it. Um, yeah, I'm just saying. So, yeah, I think that, um, I think that, yes, Corman is clearly a better director who is kind of self-hampering like he's shooting himself in the foot a bit by like sticking to these low budgets and quick schedules um so this definitely isn't as good as a bucket of blood so i started just kind of going down the list trying to find where our other roger corman movies are and i think the next highest ranked corman movie is it conquered the world which is at 84 I liked Wasp Woman better than It Conquered the World because It Conquered the World, while it's like a taut little thriller, I don't know as it really was, to me, it didn't seem as it had as much substance to it. 
So I started looking up from It Conquered the World, and where I ended up landing is, is clearly too high, given that like you had many more reservations about this movie than I did. Um, but I was looking at number 76, Above Horrors of the Black Museum, uh, another movie that I think was much more um, intentionally misogynist than this one. Mm. Um, and Below the Tingler, which I think even though you you know were disappointed by that movie as well, I think pulls off what it's trying to do uh, better than Wasp Woman does. So that's where I was looking. But I, I get the feeling that's much too high probably for you. Yeah, because I, I wasn't really feeling like this fit on the list. But mm. if we're going to rank it, even at 84 with It Conquered the World, mm -hmm. I feel like It Conquered the World is better. That movie I don't recall having as much filler as this one did. That's fair. Um, the monster design I think was better pulled off even as much as it's like that conquered the world. Like, <laughs> but they took the time to like try to make it taller, you know, like I think that movie deserves a bit better than the wasp woman looking down from there. The other movie that kind of caught my eye is um, the director of last week's movie, uh, attack of the giant leeches Kowalski. He also did night of the blood beast. That movie isn't that good. Kowalski's, you know, he's, Okay, but he's not that good of a director. So I think I'll put 104 as my floor. Mm. Um, coincidentally, right around here is Cult of the Cobra, which is uh, a movie we tend to point to for like, hey, look, it has some like societal message, even sure. if it necessarily didn't mean to. I think you and I both have faith in Roger Corman and his crew that the societal things that they're talking about in Wasp Woman were intentional yeah. more than what they were going for in Cult of the Cobra. Yes, I would agree. But um, above Cult of the Cobra are things like the bad seed, not of this earth, even the manster. And the manster had a lot more to say than Wasp Woman. Yeah, the manster... A uh, guy gets experimented upon in Japan. Yes. And what does he turn into? A monster? <laughs> sure. I'm just trying to remember, like... it's It does have, like, an ape element to sure. it. Which there is, like, a, a funny, like... Remember when people were experimenting with, like, monkey <laughs> right. uh, glands in this movie? Yeah, uh, yeah. So that was that was kind of neat. So, so I, I don't feel like I would could go above the monster. So I guess my range here is 97 to 104. Okay. I think that's fair. Um, not of this earth is the one with, like the guy with the sunglasses in the briefcase who has a teleporter, right? Yes, it is a guy with tinfoil on his eyes with like the really baller poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, Ona Kyuketsuki is at 100. That's mm -hmm. Lady Vampire, uh, the movie about a vampire who's trying to make a lady into a vampire, but in fact features no lady vampire in the movie. Um, that had a really fantastic appeal. Yes, also, Lady Vampire is just kind of like low-key dope. Yes. Um, so, you know, and above that, there's the bad seed, which is very melodramatic, but hugely influential. Um, so I'm thinking above Cult of the Cobra, but below Lady Vampire 101. I would be fine with this. Okay, cool. So entering the list at the new number 101 
is The Wasp Woman from 1959, directed by Roger Corman. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many other episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and you can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. It's the most common way for people to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us out with getting more discovered on the internet, you can leave us a rating or a review. Um, Doing that helps the algorithm know to promote us when uh, people are looking for new podcasts, Um, or you can simply recommend us to people in your life, uh, friends, family, coworkers, uh, anyone who is interested in wasp women and uh, fun facts about cosmetology. No, Sarah's just shaking her head. Eh. Recommend the show to your friends, families, and coworkers. <laughs> you want to learn about shrews, don't you? <laughs> um, another way that you can help us out that we'd appreciate is heading on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Just like Toby Martin. Thanks, Toby. You can be like Toby and join up as a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episode polls. May is, um, you know, still open for people to vote on, but currently it's looking like it might be Zombies on Broadway. Okay. Um, But for April's horror-adjacent movie, we will be watching Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast if you want to get involved with that. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we're watching the B movie uh, to mm, this film, ironically, yeah. because, you know, if any, this is a B movie. But um, <laughs> these are wasps. Ben. Sure, fair. Um, so we are watching Beast from Haunted Cave, directed by Monty Hellman <laughs> and uh, produced by Gene Corman. And Wikipedia describes it as a horror heist movie? Are we stealing the cave? Are we stealing the beast? I don't know, uh, but I'm excited to find out. Great. Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.